Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Ask people about the state of Michigan, and certain images are bound to come to mind. Motown, the auto industry, Detroit, and probably that giant mitten. It's a really big state geographically, but it's also a state rich in history. For many African Americans, their history follows a path from ancestral homes in the South to Detroit, often as part of the Northern Migration. But what many don't realize is that many African Americans, some as early as Underground Railroad days, settled in Western Michigan. Marshall Kilgore was born and raised on the west side of the state in Comstock Park, a little town on the outskirts of Grand Rapids. He believes that growing up in Comstock Park gives him a different perspective. He learned how to code switch very early on and very quickly, meaning that he learned how to work within the majority, learning how to navigate and still keeping who he truly was intact. Kilgore is an activist working for marginalized communities, including communities of color, the LGBTQIA community, people with disability, and others in need, helping folks who are most vulnerable in the community runs in his family. Marshall is ready to bring positive change to communities, the state, and the nation. He's studying political science at Western Michigan University. In addition, Marshall is Western Michigan Director at United Precinct Delegates and trustee of the Kalamazoo County Democratic Party. Marshall, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm good. I right, so you know, are you ready for the Michigan winter? <laughs> oh God, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like the farmer's almanac is usually pretty correct, and they said that we're supposed to have a rough one this year. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you're here from Michigan, and you know, I know I travel about. And if you say you're from someplace other than Detroit, you know, they sort of try and figure out where that is. Or you have to do the whole mitten thing with your hand and point it out. But most people still, when they think uh, see someone who's African American from Michigan, their first thought is, you know, oh, hey, Detroit, you know. But you're from Western Michigan. Yeah, so that, from, yeah. I mean, how, how has that been? Have you encountered uh, that where people are surprised? Well, I think once I open up my mouth, people. <laughs> once I open up my mouth, people are like, "Okay, well," I, I throw them for a loop. Um, I I get the South a lot. Um, I like to say y'all. I do have some family from the <laughs> South and mm-hmm. from Arkansas. Um, but I'm from a little town called Comstock Park outside of Grand Rapids. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I love working in Detroit, but I do see that a lot where folks do only think that, um, you know, African-American folks are from Detroit, whereas we're all over the state. I know. You know, because, you know, I, I mean, I grew up spending time, in fact, most summers on the west side of the state. Like I had an aunt who lived in Bangor, although they were originally from Chicago. But I know that there's a lot of people on the west side of Detroit. There's a rich history, even part of the Af- uh, Underground Railroad. There were people who came up through Battle Creek and then just stayed in western Michigan. How, how do you feel that you're different? What's the perspective that you have that's different from someone who's from southeast Michigan being from the west side of the state? Um, I think that perspective is, Detroit, why I loved working in that is you do see more folks who look like you. You do see more African Americans when you go to the Southeast or Detroit. Um, the West Side and, and being from this little small suburb, um, I, I think I really learned how to code switch really well. Um, mm-hmm. And that perspective, that, that's a skill that I think we all have. Um, but, I mean, I think I learned it very early on <laughs> and very quickly and I, and I do it well and I and I mean that by you can call it cold switching but it's also working with within the majority learning how to sort of navigate um and still keep who you truly are as well but also working within the majority so I think that was the difference of being from this little small town that was predominantly white um allows me to um, sort of navigate a very um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now, I know one of the things that, that I noticed from that experience is that, you know, I knew that there was a large Latino population in Michigan, and I also made me sensitive to immigration issues because I can remember in the summer there being people who their lives involved, you know, following like primarily fruit or vegetables and that they were migrant workers and learning that culture from them. I had friends who were Latino. I think that I was exposed to that Spanish language. And, you know, many people are surprised. Do you see Michigan as a more diverse state also because you're from Western Michigan? I think our state, um, we have a high population of folks who are um, from uh, are, are Muslim as well. We have a beautiful mm-hmm. mixture. Um, I do think our state is diverse, but from being from the western part of the state, I do see that we're very much divided, that there's little pockets of... Um, you know, we can celebrate diversity that is there, but those pockets need to come together. Um, we're very much divided, um, especially even within um, minorities, right? So um, I have a meeting later today with uh, the Latino Council uh, here in Kalamazoo. So, you know, and that explores how we can help um, different communities, right? You don't have to identify as um, Latino to help that community. So mm-hmm. that's one thing, you know, I think we could be better at is uniting and building coalition, even if we're not within these um, communities. 
Mm-hmm. So how did your family end up in Comstock? I mean, and I, I was reading about <laughs> yeah. it. I went and read about it, and I understand that you have a huge number of golf courses in Comstock, you know, but, I mean, <laughs> your, your dad was not Tiger Woods. I saw that, too. So how did, you, right. how did your family end up in Comstock? Yeah, so Comstock Park is for golf um, and beer. <laughs> so <laughs> there's legit, uh, uh-huh. there's legit a ton. I mean, you're never with a mile away from a bar, which is a cool thing, I guess. Um, but we ended up there because my family were from all over, but my parents grew up in more of the city, more of Grand Rapids. Uh-huh. And so I, I think once they had kids, they they I was originally born in Illinois, but I only stayed there for three months, <laughs> and then they moved back <laughs> to Grand Rapids. <laughs> so uh-huh. um, I think once they started and had their own little family, they wanted a place where their kids could really prosper. Um, Comstock Park Public Schools is like in the top ten for the best public schools in Michigan. You know, it's safe, it's quiet. Um, but the down part of it is we were, um, you know, a handful of African-American students there. So it, it was that story that a lot of African-American families have done of, okay, we're going to move them um, from where they're surrounded by their people and where we grew up into a more um, really white space, to be honest, to be, you mm-hmm. know, bold, um, but will hopefully catapult them into success. So did it work? I think yes. I think I was very mm-hmm. prepared for um, college life, for the world, but there was definitely a little, um, a weird feeling of being, you know, the only African American all the time in classes sometimes. Did you did you ever have a moment when you wanted to, like, escape to Detroit where, you know, it's like, you know, you had Detroit envy, like, I want to be down there and I want to be, you know, well, you you didn't feel like you were one of the cool kids, and and you wanted to escape to be cool. Yeah. So this is when I when I talk about I learned to code switch and sort of go through. I didn't have that. I know my sisters did. I know my sisters did not really care for. They loved uh-huh. hanging out with their cousins. They loved going to Kentwood. They loved going to, um, you know, basically the inner city to see more of our people. But for me, like, I was elected class president four times in a row. So it was just sort of like I knew that I could use this to my advantage. And I didn't mind. I think as I got older, I noticed that I was the face of the race. And I'm like, well, how can I show these people that, African-American males are something different. How can I show them that black people as a whole are something different? So I sort of like really drove that home. Um, And my sisters will tell you all the time, they're like, oh, he hated it. And I'm like, I loved it because it was such a weird experience. But it also, when we talk about advocacy work and things now, it's like, I love breaking stigmas. I love showing people that, you know, what they've heard or stereotypes are not always true. You know, I've just realized that I did it too. I asked you, did you want to escape to Detroit? But you know what? A lot of people on the west side of the state want to escape to Chicago. Yeah. Which which city did you grab? Which did you think of as being like if you were going to go one way or the other? Or which or your sister? Which one? 
were they more interested in being a part of? You know, I think they would definitely do like a um, – I'm thinking of what, what – there's an amazing uh, Detroit school um, of performing arts. I'm trying to think of the name. Cast Tech. There we go. They were thinking oh, yeah. of like, you know, beautiful. They've got a band and it's mm-hmm. all these beautiful, you know, brown people. I think they were more um, excited for things like that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we had a roller skating rink in Kentwood <laughs> when we were younger. And, oh, my gosh, I think on the weekends, you know, my sister, my oldest especially, would love to just escape there to be, you know, really deep in our culture and our music and just seeing our people. Um, uh-huh. You know, it, it's weird how that works on the psyche of growing up within the majority um, because even when I moved to Kalamazoo, right, of I'm studying now at Western, where there's, it's very diverse. There's people from outside of the country. There's people from all over um, the world, basically. It was weird for me because I'm like, whoa, not only am I seeing more of my people, but I'm seeing more of the world. And I loved it. Um, and I felt that was when I felt, so really my first year of college a few years ago, that's when I really felt like, I think I missed out a little bit, but I looked at it with a more positive lens of, hey, I'm going to soak it up as much as I can now that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, your parents are there, and uh, you, um, you got what your parents are doing, but besides your parents, who were your role models? I mean, did you, were you, because, did you look at everyone as your role models, or were there specific black people who sort of said, yeah, this is how you navigate here, you know. Who, yeah. who taught you how to do the code switching? <laughs> um, you know, this is going to make you laugh, but I have someone I've never met, but she's definitely my role model. She's still my screensaver now, Tina Turner. <laughs> All right. <laughs> is, oh, my gosh, my idol. She just turned, like, 80. Um, uh-huh. And that woman was just so... I still went through a lot of challenges, right, being a member of the LGBT community, being black, you know, not really I was good at sports, but I didn't love them. Um, And and with Tina, it was like, oh, my gosh, this woman who basically reinvented herself, right, went from the chitlin circuit to being like a rock star up there with these white guys with Jagger and all that, um, improved and proving that we can do it. So it was really, Uh that's been my idol for a long time, Uh Um, is Tina Turner. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Good choice. (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) Really, really good choice. You know, what took you, because, I mean, you have often, I mean, you often talk about yourself wanting to be, to bring a positive change. I mean, you're involved in politics. What, sort of started to pull you in that direction? Mm. So when we, so like I told you in my community in Little Concept Park, I was elected class mm-hmm. president four times in a row in high school. So I was class president for my whole high school career, which was such a cool experience. But we had a tragedy. We had a few of my friends uh, and a few um, other students from a different school district, Sparta. So it was Comstock Park students and Sparta students who were in a car, they did what kids do. They made a silly decision and went 120 miles, rainy night, and hit a tree. You know, Mm. the car was totaled. 
um, one of them ended up passing away, my friend Alyssa, God rest her soul. Um, You know, and a lot of things happened from that. But as class president, I went from planning just the dances to I could also plan fundraisers and things to help these families. So the principal was like, you know, hey, Marshall, you know everyone, you know their families, can you help me with this? So we made a spaghetti dinner, and we raised thousands. I think we raised like $5,000 for these families. Um, You know, we were on the news. I was jumping from hospital to hospital to talk to them. I was sort of doing what a representative or a mayor or a governor could do. Um, But as little class president me, um, and I remember my dad saying that, you know, I came home in tears because I was just burnt out. You know, I'm this little, like, 17-year-old kid who is jumping, I've been my little hoopty, and I'm jumping from hospitals, I'm talking to Fox, I'm, you know, coordinating all these things. And he's like, um, my, my nickname for my dad is um, the mayor, D-A mayor. <laughs> yeah, so when I call him, it pops up as the mayor. So, you know, then he's like, you know, this is beautiful, Marshall, but I think the path that you're going down is this, and you're going to have to learn to to delegate and to juggle more. But I think Mm -hmm. that's when I noticed, okay, to provide this change and to be this person that's in the forefront, who usually does that? Um, And those were people that I could see um, as our elected officials. When done right, they can provide positive change. Wow. Oh, that's a a lot. The mayor, I like that. I really like that, the mayor, and I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to watch, you. I'm going to watch for you until the day comes. Well, we're going to take our first break here. And okay. when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about you and your life. So we'll be right back. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Marshall Kilgore. Marshall, okay, you're living in Comstock Park, okay? You're already, uh, what, what did my aunt call it? A fly in the buttermilk. That's what she would call it. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there, there aren't a lot of you, you know, and I've been over there. There aren't a lot of you. Um, and then you come out. You're part of the LGBTQ community. And I, and I wonder how was it difficult to find part of the community? I can tell you, um, I'd say like three years ago, I had someone in Grand Rapids who was like, you know, we need gay people from Detroit to come up here and talk, you know, because we don't have people. And I'm going like, there's a lot of gay people up there. But how was coming out, I mean, was that like an additional burden? Or how did you then – Find another group of your peers. I remember I always tell this story when people ask a question like this. I had a friend, um, his name was Travis. Travis loved um, dinosaurs, aliens, things like that. And I remember when we were really little, he said, would you be scared if aliens, um, we had to be like eight or nine. He said, would you be scared if aliens came and landed, I think it was a writing prompt or something, you know, when you're little. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, my gosh, Travis, no, I wouldn't be scared if they came back to Earth. And I couldn't explain the answer when I was that little, but now I can because that's how I felt. 
I felt this whole time like some type of alien or creature that was so scary to people that no one understood, that no one had really seen, right? No one's really seen these Mm -hmm. dinosaurs or whatever. So I felt like that was me. So I had a very – I love science because there's all those weird things in it, but I felt so weird, and and I'm just now getting the addiction for it. I just came out to my father by this summer, and my mother this summer as well. So Mm -hmm. it took a long, long time um, to get the words for it because I knew I wasn't gay. I I liked Mm -hmm. both of um, the sexes. Mm -hmm. So it was – it was very different to navigate through that. Um, and finding people within Comstock Park, that was a, a, a no. We knew within mm-hmm. our community that just really wasn't a thing. There wasn't really people who were like that. And if they were, they were a spectacle. They were objectified. They were called different terrible names. And I, and I was bullied. It, it was such a weird mm-hmm. – I was just talking to my counselor about this – of okay, I was really popular, right? People only voted for me. But Mm -hmm. also, I was so, so bullied. Um, And when I would face these people, these people who were bullies, they would turn into friends. They they knew that I was a good person, but they were going with the status quo. So it was was an odd childhood. But, man, I I think it fades – it, it it turned into something beautiful, um, but yeah, it's odd when I reflect on it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, and I thank you for saying that. Often, you know, there are people who go, "Oh, these young people, they have it so easy, and everybody, and they're just out it." You know, they're just out. You know, they're just there, and that that coming out process is like almost not as they discount your coming out process because they go like, oh, well, they grow up and it's all over TV and we have prides and we've got this and that. So it's so, you know, everybody is just out. But it's not. And there's still, you know, people, like you said, you have to go through that coming out process. You have to find yourself and you have to do that. Do you often, how do you, what do you say when you hear people who, who assume that because you're mm-hmm. young, it's just like a walk in the park. You know, I'm here, I'm queer, everybody's used to it. Oh, I laugh. I laugh mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I know people who are younger and are still mm-hmm. closeted or feel like they can't within the community that I was raised and contact me in tears almost monthly of, wow, I feel so trapped. So sure, that may be what be is, is being broadcasted, but... That's that's so silly, um, you know. And we also have to think of these companies um, make a coin off of helping marginalized people. You know, like even Colgate had a um, a, a commercial or, or or a thing towards our community. And it's like, well, I'd hope gay people and trans people brush their teeth too. It's like so silly. Thank you. You know. Uh, you know, like, what are you really helping? What are you, you know, put that corporate money towards something better than just trying to make a campaign so we can use Colgate. Most of us already use Colgate anyway. <laughs> so it's it's sort of like I laugh because within these communities, within some of us youth, 
are within communities where we can't be free. Where it's, and you know, I don't, I didn't really like the term of coming out, right? Because I'm thinking like the Diana Ross song or someone popping mm-hmm. out of the closet, like I'm coming out, you know, like woo. It was not a party for me. I felt like mm-hmm. I had totally failed um, my parents with my being, right? Because I had done everything else right. I was an athlete. I was great with academia. I was great socially. And then here I'm going to present this identifier that really can glaze over all that. And people can just say, well, he's this. And, you know, so, and, and there's already, there was already an identifier there that sort of combats those, you know, those good qualities too, as I was born black. So I think mm-hmm. with my parents, I felt like, wow, I'm going to be a failure because those two identifiers, how can you navigate? And I think my parents knew when I was younger, but they were so fearful because how can a black male who's also mm-hmm. queer navigate life? You know, so now he's going to get it from both sides. So I always say double whammy. Um, mm-hmm. So I was so fearful. I was so fearful. It wasn't fun. It wasn't a party. It wasn't – Diana Ross was not playing in the background for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and it, and it's interesting because that's what I tell people. I met a, a young woman who was like – in her 20s, who said that she had only been out online because, like you said, that, that whole thing about coming out to her parents, even though when she finally did, she said, you know, they had a suspicion, they thought, but they were kind of waiting. But, you know, they were fearful for her. And did you feel that, you know, did your parents express that, you know, that, that concern for you? I think I think my parents were happy that a burden was lifted of I could be myself, um, and this was a process. It was a, it was a continuous conversation um, that developed as we both got more comfortable with the idea of me being out to them. But I know that the fear was there. I think you know my mom's a juvenile probation officer. The fear of when I go out and I'm stopped within my car and I could be shot in cold blood, that fear's there, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then now she's like, well, what if you get hired someplace? And because of who you love, you could be fired. So mm-hmm. that fear is there because that protection isn't here in Michigan. We're working well. We have it within some cities. But you can still get fired for who you love here in our state. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That is the fear that I think both of my parents know I can navigate by being an activist and being an advocate. But growing up where we help people and we love on people who don't look like us or identify as us, they're fearful for me being overwhelmed with seeing other people who are really a part of my community, my family, um, you know, be marginalized and not treated correctly. I think they're fearful of me coming in like I did when I was little in tears from planning and ripping and running around, right, of, okay, you can't save everyone. And that's a hard thing mm-hmm. I think you've probably experienced, too, of this work can be hard on the soul, really, um, mm-hmm. because everyone isn't going to have those same um, opportunities as you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked and and you've met him, Robert Marchman, who is like on the National Board of PFLAG. And one of the things that there's a couple of things that he had talked about. He said that although 
that safety issue, like he said, not only does he think about his own son, but he thinks of other, particularly African-American young men, because, you know, uh, and, and for that part, the whole LGBTQ community, like we don't have a get-out-of-jail-quick, raise, raise, your, raise your, your, your gay card, you know, we're still black, and we have to deal with the, the prejudice and the bigotry just from being in the racism because of our, who we are. You know, which we can't change. We might be able to keep our, our gayness, hidden, but, you know, we still are subjected to it. But, you know, I was listening to him talk, and he talked about a lot of the things that you just mentioned and doing it from the perspective of PFLAG and not just like the parents and, and friends and families, how we then go about building a community to make it safer for them and to make people understand the very things like, you know, your parents are concerned about. You could get, you know, not only could you get pulled over being a young black man, but you could get fired for coming out. You were at the NAACP convention. How important was it to you to hear this organization, which is supposed to represent us, I mean, which has, you know, this long history of it, has four resolutions about the LGBTQ community, one specifically about the trans community, and then also to put on a panel to talk about the state of LGBTQ people who are black. They said of color, but come on, we meant of black in this country. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, that was so moving for me. I have my sister, as I call her, Janice Poindexter, who was just jumping up and down about when the first one came out, right, this resolution, and, you know, so be it that we're supporting this and that we're fired behind them because when we look into the statistics and when Janice, um, she's such a powerful woman, but when she was explaining this, tears welled up in my eyes that when we look into these trans women being murdered, some of it is our brothers, is African-American males murdering these women. So uh-huh. it, it was. It, there's a lot of intersectionality that has to be addressed. And so I'm very happy that this organization that has been pivotal in my grandparents' life and my parents' life and my life uh-huh. is also seeing different par- parts of me because we are multidimensional. We are not just black men or black women, we are also a black queer or a black gay man or a black bisexual or whatever. We have a lot of identities within one person. So I love that they're, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, that they're saying, you know, okay, this is new. Um, and, and we have to understand, too, I'm also bold with saying we have to understand the African-American community has not been very welcoming to LGBT people. And so having an organization that has been so pivotal for our people to accept us or to begin working on accepting us and fighting for us was huge because I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of people within our community, excuse me, that see um, being within the LGBT community as something that is wrong with you or, or a handicap almost. So, yeah, I was very happy to see mm-hmm. those. And, you know, and the thing that, that's so funny is, like, we've always been there, okay. And the thing is, you know, and, and how often do we hear people talk about, oh, well, they were in the church choir, you know, and they lead this. But that was okay. And even though everybody knew that was okay. 
or you went so-and-so and you go see so-and-so, and even though everyone knew they were okay, but it seems like it wasn't until we started to stand up and say, you know, yeah, but we're gay, that suddenly you have an issue with us. But we've always been there. You know, 100%. Why? Yeah, you know, we've always been there. But it also seems to be still in many people when they think about gay, you know, they think gay is white. And we are somehow, like I said, we've given up our black card because we've chosen to align ourselves with white, which is so ridiculous. Well, I think it is ridiculous. And, and I also sort of have this little um, hypothesis, will you say. You know, I love science. But I do believe that because we went through hundreds of years of oppression, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, we, mm-hmm. it, just, it, it was continuous. Um, I believe that our people are saying, right, because just how I'm saying with my parents is it's a double whammy. I don't think that our people specifically go out and try to be homophobic, but they want to have our community as powerful as it can be, and then they see people who are within the LGBTQ LGBTQIA, there's a lot, <laughs> um, community, mm-hmm. um, and they think it's a choice, right? They haven't educated themselves. They haven't talked to one of us. And so they're like, why would you do this? Why would you, you know, make yourself, quote, unquote, weaker in a sense? So it, it comes from a lot of ignorance and a lot of just not knowing or talking or um, educating yourself, and I think people want our community to be stronger, but this isn't a handicap. This isn't anything that's wrong with the LGBT community or black people who are gay or whatever. Um, And so I think there needs to be more intersectionality and education about this and about our community so people would understand it. But my hypothesis is, as you know, they're saying, why would you add this on? Because that makes you weaker. And we want our community to be stronger after 300-plus years of this, of oppression by the majority. But that coalition and us being stronger is not going to come by you making us feel like crap for who we were born to be. Okay. I'm going to put this on the flip side. We know that there is movement in our community, and that often the ones who are the biggest homophobes are really the minority of the black community. I mean, I mean, we're not all like that, but it has been perceived even that, you know, African Americans are homophobic. So as you're going through that, and, you know, and I don't know about you, but I've had it like, well, I've had people come and say, well, what are you going to do about those black ministers? I've done nothing. You know, I, I can't do anything. You know, that onus on you to somehow or other defend all of the black community to go out there and, 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 and change it. What do you do as you're traveling, doing your political work, working with everyone, when you have someone come up and say something? In fact, it was just in, um, I mean, there's that big thing about, um, South Carolinans would never work, vote for Mayor Pete because they are homophobic. What do you do when you hear that? What's your, what's your pushback to that? I say this is why I wanted to be a third grade teacher when I first started studying. <laughs> <laughs> People need to educate themselves. Education is so beautiful. It's so powerful. And people need to really – really educate themselves. But my pushback is 
it's time to evaluate yourself of what are your true wants. So you want a, a, a second Trump uh, president? You want a different, a, a, you know, a second term? Is that what you're saying? People, mm-hmm. folks need to evaluate themselves. I wouldn't vote for Pete just because I, I don't think he's qualified and he's not going to be able to stand up against what we have from the Trumpian era. But if he becomes the, the, you know, the candidate for our party, don't we have to rally behind him? What hey, vote goal blue no matter who. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what's yeah. our goal here? Do we mm-hmm. want people in the presidency because of their identity or do we want them because of their qualifications and what they'll be doing to move our nation forward? So in South Carolina, I mean, that's just such a silly, uneducated thing to say. Um, and I think we're in the time where I, I don't really give people the, oh, they don't know any better. We have these phones. We have the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, educate yourself a little bit about the dangerous policies that the Trump administration has put forth. It's all over the news. You can never escape it. So anybody else really right now <laughs> besides him could really help our country. So I think mm-hmm. we have to understand that that one portion of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, that one piece of him, is nothing compared to what he would bring to the table. And that's one thing that we have to understand is just because it's unsettling for you to say that he has a husband, whatever, mm-hmm. his policy mm-hmm. would be far better than what we're getting right now. He would be able to keep families together. Maybe we wouldn't get fired for loving whoever we love. So your cousin, mm-hmm. right, one of us, wouldn't get fired on their job for loving who they love. So – that's the type of thing is education is powerful and really people, folks have to evaluate themselves and say, okay, what, what really am I getting at here and what biases or stereotypes may I be feeding into um, sort of subconscious, uh, subconsciously? Mm-hmm. Do you find it, um, and, and it's interesting because I think it, was, it wasn't that long ago that I talked to um, Robert Marchman and he was talking about being that person in the room. Do you often find that you're the person in the room and where people sort of look to you to have the answer, okay? They look at you, here you are, you're African-American, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You're young. So if they go like, well, what about those black people? What about those millennials? What about others? Do you often find yourself being that person in the room? And how do you change the narrative where, no, I'm not that person in the room, but I am all of those things, you know, to talk about your how, and you do, you think very critically, you're looking at at issues, you're looking at how it affects everyone. How do you switch that narrative to where, no, I'm not the black person in the room, I'm (laughs) this person, and let's talk about this. Uh, Yeah, I might be the millennial in the room, but you can talk to everyone. Well, and that's the thing. Uh, I laughed when you first said that because it was like when you're younger and you're talking about slavery and everyone turns back and looks at you. That was the experience I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would let them look. I wouldn't say Jack because you know what? That is um, when I got to work with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, 
when we were going around, she's like, you know, we've got to stop talking to black churches about racism and go into white churches and start talking about racism. Now, that mm-hmm. wasn't originally hers. We've heard that. Mm-hmm. But I love mm-hmm. that she was rocking with it. I love that she, as this woman um, that was within the majority, within such a level of privilege, not only a white woman, but has, you know, financial resources as a senator, so privileged, but talking about white privilege. So mm-hmm. I think when I'm within that room or when I'm within that space of, you know, well, I'm the one millennial and there's boomers and there's Gen X and whatever, I say, you know, why don't you all grapple with this a little bit? Say, you know, mm-hmm. use your mind. I think the mind is such a powerful thing. Don't just let me be the answer. Start Googling. Look up a book, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Talk amongst yourselves to see what plan and what answer you all come up with, and then we can compare. But it's dangerous to only get my perspective, even if I'm within these communities. I, you know, being and, and that's when I talk about that navigation and and being the face of the race when I was younger, that taught me that to educate these people, they have to do it themselves as well. They have to have a stake in it and not just me saying, okay, well, this is what happened, and I believe this, and Harriet Tubman was this, and and this person was this, Uh and, um, you know, Martha P. Johnson was this. and, And no, well, we have to understand that they have to also become educated about what our transgressions were and what our hardships were and compare that to something that has happened to them um, and not just expect all the answers to come from those who identify because then it becomes more personal. When we talk about losing jobs, you know, so if we're in boomers, you know, people in Michigan, they can talk about the closing of GM and all that. Okay, so you understand how it is to have people you love lose a job. So now compare that to my community, right? And when we start Mm -hmm. making those communications, those um, connections, excuse me, then that's when real, you know, growth starts happening because then they have a personal connection to it. And that that personal connection didn't just come from me telling them something. They had to sort of think about it too. So when I'm in those rooms, right, where they're turning back and looking at me or saying, well, you identify as this, so what? I encourage them to also think about it while I'm sharing what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sometimes I find that I just bring it down to, why don't you go handle your tribe? Okay, go handle your tribe. I got mine. You know, because it can be very frustrating because, like you said, you know, it's sort of like, but then there's that role also that you sort of say, like, yeah, you know, how to find it in your community, and then we can find chaos together. But it is. It can be like it can be very frustrating sometimes. Do you get? You know, we aren't post-racial. We know that. But do you sometimes get tired of you know of hearing the race part? You know that, or even the the gender. I mean that. How come you can't be Marshall who comes in there? You're bringing a wealth of knowledge, different perspectives, skill set. How do we get past? You know, be without giving up our identity as being black people and sometimes people of color, whichever. Yeah. I mean yeah. how do we how do we get be, get past it? And and let me take that to how do you feel about being lumped under that big POC umbrella? 
I mean, do you do you want to? Are you okay with that? I mean, I've talked to more people who are like, you know, okay, yeah, I'm all right sometimes for numbers to be under people of color, but I don't want to give up my black identity. How do you feel about that? I say I love it if it's done correct. I do think sometimes mm-hmm. that's a trick of the majority to, to start just to overlook certain issues within uh, different communities, right? Uh, because uh-huh. if you say, well, I love people of color, well, do you love black trans women who we have an epidemic right now uh-huh. uh-huh. and being murdered? So I, I understand when people are upset with that. But I think for ours, right, we talk about tribes. When tribes connect and people of different uh, backgrounds and identities connect, as people of color, if we could build coalition, there's so much power within that. Um, and uh, when I worked with Supermajority, um, Cecile Richards, the uh, past CEO of Planned Parenthood at Supermajority, and when she talked about that with us, of uh, women and people of color coming together, wow, there's a lot of power behind that. And we've seen that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams was a part of that as well. It's beautiful. Uh, we've got to come together because, yes, separated, we are the minority, but together we're the supermajority. We would outvote, we would outweigh, we would outnumber these people who have oppressive regimes. We, we would totally overwhelm them. But how do we create these coalitions? And sometimes there's language barriers. Sometimes there's barriers of just not understanding how to talk to one another or interact with one another. Or people get too caught up in terms. Okay, great. You don't care about that term. You don't like POC, but do you like what it stands for? Do you Mm. like the power behind it that we would receive if we do it right? Um, That's sort of the thing that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I've heard that. And actually I've heard a similar conversation when people say queer. I mean, I have heard uh, when the Mm – Creating change was here. There were some lesbians who really bristled on being put under the queer umbrella, like, you know, lesbians, and trying to do the same discussion with that, like, you know, well, we're stronger, you know, with that, you're not giving up anything. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it can be language and that bigger perspective of how you look at it is so important. So we're going to take our second break, and I want to talk a little bit really into politics and what's happening now and get some of your viewpoints on what we need to do to have a blue tsunami in 2020. So we'll be right back. All right. Mm-hmm. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm here with one of your official titles. I mean, um, you know, you are the Western Michigan Director for United Precinct Delegates. You also Uh study political science and communications. Okay. Mm -hmm. Have you been watching the debates? I have. I just did a debate watch party with uh, Commissioner Stephanie, Stephanie Moore, uh, one day. So that was amazing. And she has a program along with Mothers of Hope called Black Youth Vote. So it's millennials of color who vote 
and we get together and we watch these debates and we talk about issues and concerns directly towards our community of being younger and being African-American. And when we talk about intersectionality, it's a beautiful thing to see all these people, Latino people, African-American people, Asian people come together, sit down and watch this and also talk about, okay, did they even talk about us? Did they talk about things that are, are, you know, towards our community? And in this last debate, we saw that, you know, Kamala Harris came out hard swinging with the facts Mm -hmm. of women getting paid less and and broke it down for people of it's not just 80 cents for every woman. African-American women are getting 61 cents. Native American women Mm -hmm. are getting X amount of cents. So um, to the, you know, Caucasian man's $1. Uh, So that was interesting to talk about that, but we all were in, in agreement on Wednesday of there's still not enough talk of, okay, we as, our, as people of color, as people within the minority, as, people, as young people, of where's the help going to be for us? Because the help for our generation is not only to erase student debt, right? The help for our mm-hmm. generation is not only going to be police brutality. Those are great and definitely need to be worked on, but also to help our generation, our communities, there has to be talk of new jobs. There has to be talks of um, passing the torch. And that's one thing that I always bring up that I'm not hearing. Are these people, do they want to be oligarchs and stay in power for the rest of their life, or are they ready to allow our generation to come in, to govern, to create new jobs, to create new possibilities? Now, climate change and the environment, I mean, although there was one special town hall on it, but climate change and the environment, I mean, you get snippets of it, but long term, that affects you, you know? I mean, if we blow up this planet and and, and 20 years, hey, you know, I might be, you know, at the, at the, and it'll go like, what the hell? But, you know, I mean, we're talking about the right. future. How do you feel that? Um, how urgent do you feel climate change in the environment is, and are you hearing that? And and would you like? How would you like it to be framed better? Well, and and there is, and Kamala Harris, and I'm so biased because I love this woman. I think she's fantastic. I um, do too. <laughs> she did. She did talk about environmental racism, and mm-hmm. this is a thing that is scary for me. Uh, we know of Flint here in Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. And then the county that I lived within, you know, Kent County, at the same time Flint was coming around, there was PFAS or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, another water contaminant. There was these little pink slips on our door. Water's going to be turned off from this date to this date. And before we knew it, the problem was solved. Then we could use the water. So if you're in a more affluent area and more Caucasian area, your water, you get a pink slip, you know what's going on, you know what's in the water, um, you know when you're going to be able to use it again, problem solved. If you're in a more um, poor uh, or poverty-filled area, in a black area, you don't know, you're left in the dark, and you, you still, you know, it's been over five years of Flint. So that that's sort of scary, too, is what I think of there's, a, once again, intersectionality with these environment issues, is I don't think that the whole planet is going to be affected by 
uh, climate change, but I do know certain people who look just like me, but mm-hmm. their zip code is different than me, will be affected far worse than others. So that's when we get into this more um, ruling class or the best class or classism and different things that's scary for me of it's going to be, you know, the have and have not and every man for himself, right? Because mm-hmm. we've got a zip code that is X miles away from Flint that is just fine because it's more affluent and more Caucasian. So that's when I'm like, we've got to start talking about climate change. We've got to start talking about the environment because it does not affect us all equally. And that's why it's not getting talked about because the same people that we're electing have never experienced this stuff. They're good. You know, we talk about golf courses. They're okay. The golf courses are good. We're, we're fine. Grass is green over here, but it's wilting and dying a few miles away. So mm-hmm. that's the scary part of all this is there has to be more conversations around it, not just only because I'm a lover of science, but it's going to start affecting classes and people even more than we already see. Mm-hmm. Now, we've seen where they had said, you know, um, a great number of LGBTQ people didn't vote. They'll tell you, young people, young people don't vote. Uh-huh. Um, they tell you, communities of color don't vote. Okay. And I've heard people, their argument has been, well, you know, Hillary got the big vote, but the Electoral College gave it to Trump. So we've got two uh-huh. things. We've got those who say, I don't want to participate in the census, which also helps, you know, draw congressional lines and representation, and also those who say that they don't want to vote. Um, Part of what you're doing as a, you know, your work, and you're going around the country and you're talking to people, what messaging needs to be there? What are you doing to particularly these groups other than saying, you know, you know, not only will I unfriend you, I'll never look at you again if you don't vote. I mean, what, what, what do we do? What do we do, particularly in, you know, hey, you and I stand right in the crosshairs of that, you know, people of color, LGBTQ, well, you more are the young people than, you know, I'm in my spirit forever young, but, you know, you're right there. You're on college campuses. What do we do? What's the message that you're going out to to really make sure that people get how important it is, or other other than shouting, Supreme Court justice, you know, what do we do to get these people engaged and get them to vote? I encourage folks who are within these communities that have been affected by policy and our governing powers that be to look at history. And I ask them, um, did you have stories growing up of your grandparents or your parents fighting oppression and going to the streets, you know, those good stories that make your soul smile and and show you that the minority can stand up for themselves and provide change. Do you have those stories? And nine times out of ten, people say, yeah, my uncle, or and they'll bring up all these beautiful stories. And I say, okay, what are you going to say to your children or your nieces or nephews? How, how, do, how are you going to fight? You know, because a lot of times – we don't have time to take it to – we don't – the people are working so hard that they don't have time to take it to the street. But you will be able to tell your nieces or nephews or your children that I voted every single election, and I hoped 
and I prayed that that vote would go towards someone who would be doing the work within policy, within the governing powers that be, that would help our community. So I did fight for you, you know, because that Mm -hmm. is totally different. Um, And I always tell people, what are we going to tell the children? What are we going to tell these upcoming generations? Yeah, I'm young, but I'm always thinking about those who are even younger than me. The third and fourth graders, I can tell them, heck, yeah, I voted. I voted, I got these people elected, but people don't have to do it to the level that we do as activists or advocates. You can vote, and that is your sign in the ground saying that I'm not going to go graciously and let oppression take me over. I, I think the argument that I make is I understand that people are working. I think, one, uh, that Tuesday where we vote needs to be a holiday, point blank, period. Because before I started advocacy work, before I started working with senators and getting governors elected and stuff, I worked at IHOP for five years straight. So Mm -hmm. I know that those women, I remember wearing my Hillary Clinton button and seeing people come in with their I voted stickers, and none of those servers had those stickers or buttons because they were making their, you know, as a server, Mm -hmm. you don't have a salary. You live on those tips. So even if I leave for 40 minutes until – that money mm-hmm. that I missed in 40 minutes could be Pampers, could be my mm-hmm. rent, could be my phone bill, could be my car note. So those things of knowing that the average blue-collar person um, will really be um, disheveled by having to go and vote, that's why I'm so happy that Jocelyn Benson made, you know, the no-excuse absentee for here in Michigan. That was such a win for us because that's a mm-hmm. step in the right direction. We have to – take down these barriers that stand in people's way. Because I used to get really upset when I would see the stats, you know, of our people are not voting. But then we have to educate ourselves and dig deeper and say why. And the why is they're either working their behind off or these are the top two reasons. They're working or they have an extreme mistrust in our government. And Mm -hmm. Michigan ranks we're like number 50 for government transparency. So it's like no wonder, no wonder our people aren't going to vote because they feel as even when my vote, when I vote, right, like let's talk about 2016, Hillary had the popular vote. And then this thing called the Electoral College that no one knows about except political weirdos like myself who study political science <laughs> knows about this. This mm-hmm. random governing power that is chose it went against my decision, what? You know, basically people say, mm-hmm. yes, it. you know, oh, why well, I voted? Look, Marshall, I voted in 2016, and look at what we got. So people are either working like dogs and having two or three jobs and cannot give up, um, you know, their time, or they come back, you know, because people say, well, Marshall, polls are open till 8. You know, what if, you know, they usually people get around off around 5. Okay, great, you get off on 5. Now you got to pick up your kids from daycare, mm-hmm. right? You're going to take mm-hmm. two buses to get home. These are people's stories. So we can't just say that it's that easy. There's a lot of barriers. And then when they do that, then we still have this crazy power, supreme power, that no one really knows about or is educated about um, really deciding it for us. So I also believe so to combat this, we need a holiday for voting day, and we need to abolish electoral college. Because at the end of the day, that electoral college is the, you know, mostly, you know, old folks, you know, Mm -hmm. of older generations. 
and white men, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, people who have been past elected, and that's great. That's great that they were elected and that people polled for them and wanted to go to the polls for them at a certain time. But are they reflective of American values? Because I think in 2016 we clearly saw that they dropped the ball and that what they mm-hmm. thought America wanted, even though America damn sure didn't vote for it, here's what they gave us, and it didn't work. And now we're in an uproar. So that's got to go. That's got to go. Electoral college has to go because there's a good ratio for it, right? It's like 8.5 out of 10. It works in America's favor where we rarely see it. We only have a few accounts where it hasn't aligned with the popular vote. But those times that it doesn't has been pivotal for America. And if anything, I say – don't wait for it to happen again. Be proactive and say, let's just dismantle this thing because it basically screwed us over, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in the time, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our, of our time together, but what would you, what is your message to the community mm. wearing all of your hats about where we are in this time in history and what we need to do if we want to get, get back on track. There's a simple poem, um, a very simple poem. I'm trying to think of I believe I have to – it's a very simple poem, but it's um, uh, Edgar Albert Guest. Um mm-hmm. And it's don't quit. I would I would um, allow people to or encourage people to look up that quote. But basically it says, you know, in the end, get tired, you know, learn to rest, but don't quit. Whatever your fight is, whatever, whatever um, marginalized community you, you live within, yes, oppression is hard to combat. We can get tired. We can get weary. We can rest for a little bit. We can say, Marshall, will you go here for me? Will you go to this event for me? I promise I'll make up one event for you. Michelle, you go here for me, and I'll make up an event for you. You know, bring our friends to help us fight. But we cannot quit. The future is too muddy right now in the water to see. We don't know which way we're going to go. We cannot quit. We have to find something that pulls on our heartstrings and not quit and to keep pushing that needle forward because we can't go backwards and we can't continue to be in stalemate and stay stagnant. So that would be my message for anyone within these communities to continue and within the, within the majority, if they are an ally to us, to keep pushing, to encourage other people to get in this fight so we're not fighting alone. And you may get worried, you may get tired, but we can't quit. Mm, that's right. Well, Marshall, I know you're not going to quit, and I know that between now and next November, I'm going to see you many times. Um, yes. And and neither of us will quit. We'll, you know, I've got you. You got me. You know. Um, right. I want to thank. I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your opinions, to be a beacon for me. I mean, you know, really, you know, to it's it gives me hope knowing that there's another generation after me who is as passionate as I was at your age doing this work. And, you know, I'm still passionate, but, I mean, you've got that passion and that 
and that spirit and that youth. And I thank you for all you do. And I thank you for being with me this afternoon. Oh, thank you. And I thank you for laying the groundwork. I've got a blueprint to follow from your generation and from beautiful women like yourself. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay. And I will talk to you real soon. All right. I want to thank my guest, Western Michigan Director of United Precinct Delegates, Marshall Kilgore, a native of Comstock Park, a little town on the outskirts of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Marshall is an activist working for marginalized communities, including communities of color, the LGBTQIA community, people with disabilities, and others in need. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.